we have influenced European art, our contribution is essential to what we call European art history today. Romatopia. Romata e sintura ceren svato katrlendi utopia. Sarbishaja e Evropa tharateavel. Hello again, welcome and Lacho Divas to the next episode of the podcast Romatopia, Roma talk about their utopia for Europe. My name is Isabel Rabe and I'm hosting this podcast together with William Biele. And a big welcome to everyone also from my side. Hello to everybody out there. In this podcast, we are going to talk to Roma from all over Europe and beyond about their lives, about their experiences and about their utopia. We want to present counter-images and counter-narratives to oppose stereotypes and prejudices. In the coming months, we will be talking to a number of noteworthy community members from a varied cross-section of the Romani peoples. I'm really interested in hearing about what being Romani is to other people, because we don't often get a chance to discuss such things. For those who do not know, the Romani peoples are Europe's largest minority. This includes Sinti, Roma, Gitanos, Romanis, and other groups who loosely share a common ancestry and have been present in Europe for well over 600 years. Through linguistic theories, we know they originated in India, traveled through Persia, and were present in the Eastern Roman Empire for some time before dispersing throughout Europe. Their economic and cultural contributions have historically been overlooked. Their history is an integrally interwoven part of European history, which also is often mistaken as one of external exclusion and hardship. Though periods of extreme persecution did make their mark well before the 20th century and the genocide which we suffered during the Second World War. After the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, Romani peoples have gradually been making themselves more visible on the European scene. And let's welcome our today's guest, the art historian and executive director of the European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture, Timea Junghaus. Hello, Timea. Good morning. Hello, Lacho Dives, Isabel. Hello, Bill. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Good to have you here. Timea, we immediately start with a little game. We asked a friend or colleague, who knows, of yours to uh, introduce you with just one sentence. I'm going to read this sentence to you and you have to guess who said this about you. Okay, ready? Yes. A passionate lover of beauty with a special soft spot for high heel shoes, which she wears even if she rides her bike to work. I love it, actually. <laughs> All right, this will be a colleague. So perhaps this is Anja Mirka. Yes, <laughs> yes. <Okay>. exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I really liked it you and your high heel shoes and it always looks amazing. Yes, it's a sweet quote from Anna Mirga Krusenitska. It's a really nice. We grew to be so close. So we know everything about each other in the past three years. We worked side by side yeah. in Ariak. Yeah. Oh, lots and lots of work there. And Timea, can I ask you to start off by describing yourself in one sentence? Oh, myself. Um, yes, I am a lover of art, uh, passionate and devoted, self-sacrificing fighter for the recognition of uh, Roma arts and culture. Yeah, you are. I have a, a short CV. 
maybe not so short because you've done a lot of things. Uh, I'd like to read to you and uh, then you could just tell us if it sounds good, if I made any mistakes or uh, if there's anything you'd like to add. Timea Junghaus is an art historian and contemporary art curator. She's the executive director of the Berlin-based European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture since 2017. Timea was research fellow of the Working Group for Critical Theories at the Institute for Art History, Hungarian Academy of Sciences, 2010 to 2017. She's researched and published extensively on the conjunctions of modern and contemporary art with critical theory, with particular reference to issues of cultural difference, colonialism, and minority representation. She's completing her PhD studies in cultural theory at the Eötvös Lorand University in Budapest. Her curatorial works include the first Roma Pavilion at the 52nd Venice Contemporary Art Biennale in 2007, Paradise Lost, the Romani Elders and the Public Intervention for the Unfinished Memorial to the Sinti and Roma Murdered Under the National Socialist Regime in the frame of the 7th Berlin Biennale in 2012, the Reconceptualizing Roma Resistance Program in Hellerau Dresden 2015, and the Goethe Institute Prague in 2016. She was the curator of the visual art section for Roma Archive, Digital Archive of the Roma, from 2015 to 2018. Timea was founding director of Gallery 8, Roma Contemporary Art Space in Budapest from 2013 to 2017. She won many prizes such as the Kairos European Cultural Prize from the Alfred Tupfer Stiftung, the Catalyst Contemporary Art Award of Transit Hungary, and the Otto Pankok Prize awarded by the Roma Foundation of German writer and literary Nobel laureate Gunter Grass. Is that correct? And do you want to add anything or make any corrections, including my pronunciation? <laughs> yes, thank you for the question. It's uh, exhausting just to hear this, Stevie. Uh, <laughs> I need to make one correction. That PhD yes. that I started in 2008, I, I believe that never be, will be finished. And that <laughs> there will be some quiet time in this uh, life. But it, it's not on the horizon at the moment. <laughs> okay, all Just right. Up. Demia, for that our listeners get to know you a bit better, yeah, we are interested in what made you the person you are. So um, we would like to start to ask you some some things about your childhood. What is your most vivid memory of your childhood? Thank you for the question, Isabel. I, uh, I am the product of a single mother, My parents divorced when I was one year old, actually. And I'm coming uh, from a family that had uh, Sinto circus performers on my father's side. Or wouldn't say just circus, because they were also performing music and, uh, uh, and all kinds of uh, entertainments. Uh, but they were traveling until the 60s. And then uh, my mother's side uh, were uh, musicians, Romunglo musicians. Uh, both sides of the family thought that they are very wealthy in a certain way, and they are very privileged. And there is a clash of clans, as we all know, within the Roma context, between Roma and Sinti. And mm -hmm. uh, let's admit that both communities believe they are better than the others. So this culminated in the relationship of my parents. Mm -hmm. 
led to a divorce uh, when I was one. So I, I am the product of a very strict and uh, very disciplined, uh, self-sacrificing mother uh, who has done her best to emphasize the role of education and to make me the person that I am today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you um, have contact to your Sinto relatives? Yes, uh, of course. I was uh, on the weekends with my father. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I didn't learn much mm -hmm. about the culture of the Sinti part of my uh, heritage. Uh, only very cliché, how shall I say, cultural traits that I have seen. But I never asked my father, because I was too young by the time I last met him when I was 10, is that uh, the whole family was boxing. And my father also became a very famous boxer in Hungary. He was national champion and he was actually traveling to Madrid, Amsterdam, to European championships during socialist Hungary. I mean, uh, nobody could travel during those times except celebrities, part soldiers and party soldiers and, and uh, sportsmen. So he was a national boxing champion. And funnily enough, he even looked like Rukeli Trollman, mm. the very famous uh, Sinto mm. boxer. Mm -hmm who died during uh, National Socialism, yes. the victim of Nazis. So mm -hmm. I never could ask the question if he knew about him mm. or he was even related in a certain way. It was a fascinating family, of course, still living in a caravan in uh, the 13th district of Budapest in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And did you grew up in the 8th district in Budapest, is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, I did grow up in the 8th district, which is to date known as the Harlem of Budapest. It is uh, the district with the largest Roma population. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very important for my mother to raise me uh, with the highest possible standards. And this caused a lot of uh, actually funny uh, events in our life. Like, for example, in the home that she had, it was extremely clean and all white. Mm -hmm. uh, you asked me before, what is a memory I have? I have several photographs of myself sitting in a playground in a completely white outfit <laughs> in the sandbox with other children, of course, comfortably dressed for the sandbox. But I'm sitting there and even my hands are in this position of, I'm not touching this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's at age three, you know, like, why would you guys do this? So it's your, the first experience with the white cube you had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. So it was in my mother's home. Uh -huh. That's in, was in my mother's home. And I think this pose, mm. which was uh, full of fear for her, because uh, I only recently evaluated this, that that she she must have been so full of fear and existential financial fear of what happens if she's not in my life and how will I mm -hmm. be fed even? How will I have a home? Mm -hmm. Uh, that uh, she was extremely strict with herself and me as well, and also posing and acting and performing stability with her own methodologies of perfect furniture and white dresses and mm -hmm. perfect shoes. Mm -hmm. And how, how was school? Did you experience as a Roma in school? Uh, you also know this bill very well, you know, that the socialism was kind of equalizing and also oppressing mm -hmm. identity uh, debates. But for me, especially what I brought from home, which is that I have to be amongst the best. And uh, also that I have to differentiate myself with the Roma who do not study 
and who do not come in immaculate white dresses to school. So Mm -hmm. I was programmed by my mother to be an excellent student. And I was unbelievable nerd and a teacher's pet. I really wonder all the time why I wasn't bullied more in school (laughs) or even beaten by the others. And, you know, it's so funny because I have a big box at home. Sometimes my friends come over and we open this box and it's full of uh, really funny certificates from age 10. Like, who knows more about the Soviet Union at age 10? Uh, not, a, not a district competition, but a Hungarian competition, which means that I went from the school level to the district level to the Budapest level. Then I went to the, the, the national level, age 10, and I knew the most about the Soviet Union of age 10. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, if I have questions about the Soviet Soviet Union, I'm going to come back to you because yeah. you probably remember everything. Unfortunately <laughs> not. You know, this uh, oh. culture of uh, pressing us, uh, socialist, communist culture of pressing us to memorize. Unfortunately, all this knowledge is now, you know, the passé, it's completely lost. Uh, but, uh, but this, uh, for example, what remained is at age 14, I knew that I want to be an art historian. I want to work with art. And I also knew that I want to work with uh, modern or contemporary art Mm -hmm. at like age 14. Oh, really? That's unusual. How did you get to university? How was it at university? And and was it still possible to distinguish yourself or or fit in as not being particularly seen as Roma or, or any discrimination there? So every year there was a national competition. I'm so sorry that I'm coming out with my this story. No, I like it. I like it. Tell us. Tell us. We want to hear it. It's good. It's new information. It's really repulsive. So, uh, but I must admit this. So every year I would win the national competition. I was amongst the three. Art historian colleagues, even today, there were three or four of us who were always amongst the three winners of the national art historian competitions for high school students. But in my high school students, I had a quite big crisis, actually, in my high school years, because these were the years when I had to define myself. And I also had to kind of come to terms with my skin color, which was much darker than my mother's. I had to come to terms to all the all the discrimination and the calling out my gypsiness in during my childhood and during my uh, years of education, which has happened against the fact that I was a nerd. Mm-hmm. At the end, I was just a gypsy girl. So I had to rebel against my mother. I had to rebel against the system of the education system I was in. And I didn't prepare right before the university. That was the only year that I didn't win the competition i was actually i think flirting with one of the other competitors <laughs> so, so i couldn't win in the most important year when the winning of this competition would have meant that i get into university automatically mm-hmm. and i had to take the entrance exam and study the complete literature biography that was given for the exa- entrance exam and i had to write the exam and of course, in the rebel mode, uh, during the oral exam, I even had the topic of Dadaism amongst all the others with like antique architecture, Gothic uh, altars. You know, I was with Dadaism in the oral exam, but I managed to get in and then university started. 
to answer your question, Bill, it took me 14 years to finish my art history education. Mm -hmm. And it was miserable. Oh. Yes, it was. <laughs> it, it was uh, completely miserable and difficult for me. I didn't know how to keep up and didn't know how to write and speak the language of this old intellectual heritage that many of my fellow students had bringing it from their families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I had a completely different career during my university years. I don't know if you guys know this. This is another embarrassing story, actually. <laughs> I was... Uh, I was a sales agent for Yellow Pages. Do you know what Yellow what's a, Pages what's, is? What's embarrassing about that? The, the, I don't see any problem with that. Yeah, I don't think people know what Yellow Pages is. But no, because you... we have the internet now. That's yeah. why. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a book of uh, businesses mm -hmm. and you could sell advertisements in it. And that's what people would use to contact uh, businesses when they were in need. And uh, I started selling that and I was extremely successful in that. Um, we, I also had my first uh, baby, so I basically had to find a job because my husband was also studying at that time. So one of us had to work and I made an extremely successful career as a sales representative in, a, in an American firm, actually Verizon's Hungarian mm -hmm. uh, subsidiary. And in this American firm, of course, there was a policy of training and promoting success. So right away... Uh, half year later, I was a key account getting the biggest accounts of this Yellow Pages company. And after being a key account, I was sent to Dallas, the USA, for, oh. a, tra for a training, on a leadership training, and I became the trainer of the company. Mm -hmm. And after two years, I became the HR director of the Hungarian subsidiary with like having 180 employees. Wow. It was a very fast career. I really enjoyed it. Uh, actually, to date, I haven't made that much money um, <laughs> when I left, when I left that uh, position. But I had to leave because my mom came to my office and packed up my office and told me I have to finish university. Oh, really? Okay. And I think she was right. Mm -hmm. Now she's always right. <laughs> it's, it's really amazing. You said when you were 14, you decided to become an art historian. Why? What is your connection to art? What was your first encounter with the arts? I had an excellent uh, teacher in arts who was our teacher already from my age 10. And uh, she also ran an uh, after-school activity, which uh, was basically going through all kinds of art techniques from photography to in uh, engravings and uh, even etching to painting. She was a role model in the sense that she was strict and educating, but at the same time allowed space for self-expression and welcomed creativity in many ways. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed her classes. And then she was the one enrolling me uh, to a competition about art. Mm -hmm. My mom, especially like this, uh, she always had a, a like uh, passion for for art, even if she understands it in a in a limited way for beauty. And she she loves kitsch, for example. My mom <laughs> loves kitsch. I also love kitsch too. <laughs> I found a very nice quote by you. Um, it goes, I became an art historian because I always found that art is an important strategy in my own self-recovery. Is that still working? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, where I heal. Mm-hmm. Um, that is where uh, my uh, meditation take, takes place. Uh, creativity is uh, where I play and where uh, I find a connection. So for me, it's an extremely important part of my life. I don't uh, go and see art sometimes. I really live art in my uh, everyday practice. Mm you say that this is really that art is so important for you in your everyday practice how did you experience the pandemic i mean it, it of course it's distancing to friends colleagues family but also to the arts how was it for you mm-hmm. how did you experience the last months yes this is exactly what i wanted to say actually is about that uh, uh, i really i'm very lucky because right before the strict lockdown I have absorbed so much art. Uh, I had a I had a weekend in uh, Berlin when I saw all the exhibitions. Uh, I went to see the the Warburg exhibition and spent really like a whole day on the panels. Mm-hmm. Uh, by accident, I managed to see Kirya Petrenko's last concert before the shutdown mm-hmm. in the Philharmonie. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this really strange setting with the masks and, I don't know, social distancing between the chairs. And then uh, even in December with ERIAC, we managed to have uh, the Diaspora Europe program, Mm -hmm. which gave the team the opportunity to experience being with the artist and curating music. It will be only live streamed, Mm -hmm. but uh, this gave me the opportunity to absorb enough art so that I can make it for a few weeks. And now I just go from, how shall I say, artwork to artwork. So I use every opportunity. For example, I never understood, and I don't know if you guys know this, but I never understood private collections. I was really critical with people who accumulated a grand uh, private collection and isolated it from social and public, uh, social events and public view. So I now understand a little bit better the role of the salon. Mm-hmm. So, so I get together with uh, musician friends uh, in a very small circle, just two, uh, two of us or three of us mm-hmm. together, work together anyway, and I enjoy art that way. Mm. But it's extremely difficult, yes. Yes, it is. It is. Because yeah, you used to do a lot of traveling and you moved to Berlin a few years ago. So yeah, I guess uh, you you can't do that very much now with the, the pandemic and the lockdown. But um, given the, the traveling and uh, all of the different work that you do, can I ask you, where do you feel at home? Oh, that's a very difficult question, Bill. Um, I want. I mean, I listened to. It's really interesting how none of our colleagues could really give you a very, <laughs> very simple answer to this question. I really enjoy this part of your series. So you know, my children are in Budapest. We have a home that is the family home. So certainly, Budapest is very important to me, and uh, I am such a patriot. You know, the Orban regime is re- really trying to take this away from uh, those who are not into the populistic, uh, uh, into the populist uh, discourse. They take 
my patriotism away from me in a certain way. But I'm a patriot. I love this city. I cannot live without the view of the Danube for too long. <laughs> uh, and uh, I know this city in and out, and I know every single artwork that's in this city. <laughs> I have to think sometimes. This is certainly a home for me. And uh, Berlin has given me so much. And uh, the work with Ariak is so emotional and uh, so fantastic that uh, I certainly belong there. So my heart is completely torn between these two places. And now my life is torn between the, these two places too. Even during the pandemic, I think I'm one of the last persons who must travel. I have a very good reason. My job is there and my children are here and no authorities can overcome this conflict. Mm. I am traveling every second, uh, every second week between Berlin and Budapest. Ah, really? Mm-hmm. Well, it's nice to hear. You have a home in Budapest. You feel at home in Berlin. So it's not like you're living somewhere where you don't feel at home. You have places where you feel at home, basically. Yeah, could not choose at the moment. Okay, well, no one's asking you to rank or choose. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> we, we just want to hear your opinion and how I mean, you view it. It would be it. nice to settle at a certain point, wouldn't it, Bill? I don't yes. know. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I ask or I go through these kinds of phases where I think to myself, yes, it would be nice to choose one place and just be there forever. And then things change and I get fed up and I'm very happy to move along. <laughs> so <laughs> things change, yes. Yeah, I feel at home where I am. I feel I, I was very much at home in different places that I lived, uh, a few places where I'm glad I'm not there anymore as well. So yeah, it changes over time. But uh, uh, there's one thing about feeling, yeah, not feeling welcome, feeling like you don't belong somewhere or places where you can fit in and feel at home. But maybe, maybe, yeah, there's different kinds of homes. Maybe it's not like uh, a home where uh, you always have to go back to the exact same place. There's, there's different kinds of homes. Yes, and, and, and also I feel a lot of our uh, Roma colleagues, um, fellow travelers feel the same way. I have a, I have a bag in, uh, in Berlin, and that bag enables me to get on the road anytime, mm-hmm. to be honest. And I often feel when I'm pulling this uh, when I'm pulling this luggage that I don't need anything else. Like I, I feel that, you know, perhaps the subversion of this life is completely necessary. We can just get on the road and be on the road forever. Like we don't have to choose and pick and arrive. Yeah. 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 I understand. That's uh, sometimes, uh, yeah. If, when you have to move and you have to put all your things in boxes, do you really need to take all this stuff with you? Uh, maybe it's easier to just take a small suitcase and, and throw everything else away and forget about it. And But uh, then a couple of weeks later, I, I, I miss some things that I have. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know that I need everything that I have and that I need to take it with me everywhere I go either. And sometimes it's just good to be in a different place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of different places, so you're you're in Berlin right now? I'm in Budapest. I'm sitting in Budapest. I just arrived last Friday. What's the situation now, if I may? I'll ask you a, perhaps a big, hard, general question, but you can answer any way you like, of course. Uh, what's the situation uh, with Roma now in Budapest today? Uh, how, how are they taking it with the, the pandemic or anything you've seen personally or or maybe things that you see in the news that maybe are not making it out of Hungary 
there is no no Budapest specific news. I can tell you that the pandemic uh, has uh, a lot of uh, victims. It's taken too many victims in Hungary because of the situation of the healthcare system. And this uh, healthcare system is basically non-existent in uh, rural Hungary. Uh, and I also know that in the very beginning of the pandemic, the community was already scapegoated and isolated. Uh, really shameful events of shaming of the community has happened. A community which has limited water access, of course, it is struggling with financial disadvantage and had an extremely difficult uh, time adjusting uh, to the re- uh, hygiene requirements without any support of the public authorities. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you of shameful stories, for example, um, the lunch shipments to the schools in isolated communities would be thrown to the side of the road in front of a village because the shipper, the food shipper, wouldn't want to drive into the community. Or uh, uh, packages, humanitarian packages would arrive uh, to the community, uh, which the community would find humiliating with like potatoes and soap, while the community specifically would ask for masks and uh, hand sanitizing, proper hand sanitizing products. So it's you know, this kind of scapegoating, uh, disinformation in the news is very relevant in the Hungarian context. And uh, to reflect a little bit on the Roma intellectual community, there isn't much done at the moment by the Roma politics. Roma politics in Hungary is basically non-existent. Is it is it non-existent because people are afraid to speak out or they've left they or they're just not meeting because of the I don't know why why is it non-existent what what's what's happened exactly for that the real uh, civil rights activism of the great leaders such as Aladar Horvat, Janusziko, Agnes Daróczi was limited. Uh, the facilities and uh, the infrastructure was taken away by the Orbán uh, government. And the Roma leaders who are in the court of Orbán are have nothing to do with the community, or when they do, this is a, a very straight out compromised uh, situation by Orban and a very structured and efficient way of mobilizing EU funds, you know, without any improvement in the communities. Yeah, yeah. I was just wondering from from the point of view, like since the pandemic, I think in a lot of different countries, a lot of different places, there are so many more online events. People are talking political art discussions, uh, all kinds of different events uh, taking place. And I'm just wondering, I don't know, uh, do, do Roma in Hungary not have access to the Internet or do these Roma leaders, they're not tech savvy, they can't gather people uh, on an Internet forum or or is that, I don't know, maybe that's an irrelevant question, but uh, I'm wondering why it's so quiet when in so many other places it seems like there's more activity going on. Yes, there isn't an issue with creativity. So you still see uh, the artists, the Hungarian artists online, but what you don't see is Hungarian political leaders uh, speaking to the community online any longer. I think the left is silent at the moment, and not just in the Roma context, to be honest. Okay. Mm. And then also a big loss is um, that the CEU, the Central European University, left, had to leave Budapest for Vienna. 
Central European University, CEU, is a private research university accredited in Austria, Hungary, and the United States, with campuses in Vienna and Budapest. Part of the university's mission is the promotion of open societies as a result of its close association with the Open Society Foundations and George Soros. On December 3rd, 2018, CEU announced it would cease operations in Budapest and relocate to Vienna after the Hungarian government refused to sign an agreement allowing the university to continue operations in Hungary. Supporting Roma and the development of Romani studies at CEU is a part of the university's mission. The loss of the university in Budapest is therefore also a great loss for the Roma in the region. I think this is also a big loss for the city, isn't it? It's a devastating loss for the city. Mm. And uh, to be honest, uh, the Hungarian critical intellectual sphere has left Hungary. I am so devastated when I think about uh, our little country's future. It is impossible to create real subversive politics without uh, this massive group, this mass of critical intellectuals who are now living in Berlin and in London and in the U.S. or shaping other countries' politics for democracy. Timia, let's talk about your work. You're a distinguished curator and art historian. We're going to talk about your curatorial work later and, of course, also about your work for the European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture. But before, let's talk a bit about your academic work. Um, as a researcher, you were actually the first or one of the first to work on the representation of Roma in art history. I've seen some of your lectures on this topic and read some of your texts. It's really extremely interesting and I think it's an exciting topic to share with our listeners. So my first question, what are the most important things to know about the representation of Roma in art history and what can we learn from it? Um, this is a gigantic question. Yes, I know. <laughs> and I also have to be very careful because there is such little information I can transfer. And when we say art history, how could I even... Uh, make the impression that I know art history of, you know, several centuries, starting from the 9th to the 15th, and then when, when Roma first appeared, and then going on to modernity, for example. Mm. Perhaps uh, two important uh, events I can uh, call attention to, and this is, uh, for example, around 1427, when there is written sources of Roma appearing in Saint-Denis, and the description, the written manuscripts and descriptions about these foreign groups of Roma, which is now proven by several academics and historians that these texts are speaking of the Roma. We find in art history uh, several depictions of the groups that the text, the manuscripts also describe. Mm -hmm. And these depictions are uh, showing women with a flat head guard, which is then, uh, and also with a cape, which is tied on the shoulder. The flat head guard is usually covered with additional layers of clothing, and it's very recognizable. The cape, for example, on the men usually has stripes, 
Uh, and in uh, paintings, for example, uh, these uh, people who are described appear very dark skinned mm -hmm. and very dark haired and also uh, heavily jeweled with different body jewelry. So why I'm saying these people and not us Roma <laughs> is uh, these, we cannot make any connection between actual living Roma people and the depiction of these exotic groups of Roma people arriving to different city gates. Mm -hmm. From this point on, Roma appear in art history already in the Northern Renaissance. Whenever artists are showing the multiculturality of their era, and Roma also appear in different storylines that are believed to be connected to their history. And again, believed to be connected is a very important term here. Mm -hmm. Because uh, what happens is, for example, the same women with the cape and the head guard appear with the dark skin, appear in stories, for example, of Lily, little Moses being put on the water in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And this is because of the misunderstanding that the gypsies, the Roma, came from Egypt. Mm -hmm, These yeah. people came from Egypt. So a lot of uh, the wear and the de description is coherent with the depiction of the Egyptians, for example. Whenever artists would like to depict the exotic, the hayden, the non-Christian, or those who do not belong to us, they happen to be sometimes uh, of the group of Roma. For example, on... Uh, Bruegel's paintings, mm -hmm. or for example, on Roger van der Weyden's painting, the Hayden, and those who do not belong to the otherwise white community are not black people, but Roma, and we can identify them by their wear, mm -hmm. and by their body position, and by their face jewelries. And then I make a big jump because uh, in the coming centuries, we basically can identify Roma by the same wear and also matching the manuscripts with the, with the depictions. And this is an investigation job. It's a lot of fun, really. Mm -hmm. uh, but then in the 19th century, what is extremely interesting is that in uh, the areas, in the territories, geographies of Central, Eastern and Southern Europe, where the artists are not able to travel like the Western artists to Tahiti or mm -hmm. to Aix-en-Provence or to real faraway exotic islands or be connected to African uh, inspirations, they travel to their closest colonies. And these colonies, for example, for the Hungarian artists are Solnok, um, which is 70 kilometers from Budapest, where a large Roma settlement is. Yeah. And the same happens with the Austrian artists and the same, I mean, they don't go to Solnok, they go to their closest Roma settlement to find their exotic. And this is where they find their models. We often see that these models are reused and recirculated in art of Central, Eastern and Southern Europe. And many of the models actually are influencing not just the art of Central, Eastern and Southern Europe, but also the art of Europe, mm -hmm. the art history as we know. Uh, as European art history. Do you think the, the depictions of the Roma body in, in art history are a result of, I don't know, French and English and Spanish colonialism and how these bodies were represented in their art and then it was kind of copied and transmitted in Central Europe 
by visiting Roma colonies, basically internal colonies? Or are you saying that the the depiction of the Roma was first and that influenced the colonialism? I'm, I'm not sure if I, maybe I missed some subtlety there, but I'm, I'm interested in this parallel to mm. the, the sexualized colonized body. Yeah. Yeah, my position is extremely difficult, Bill, because let's admit there aren't too many art historians who are devoted to this research. So how do you make conclusions if you do not have uh, the opportunity for a real concilium to check your theories and to to really have a, have a very rigorous argument, uh, which is tested by other colleagues. Um, so I would like to be very careful and simply okay. say, let's admit one of the largest European colonies are actually an internal colony, the Roma people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is unavoidable that in the past, uh, I would say, millennium that we have spent in the European continent, we have influenced European art as models, as shapers of European art history, as being the ultimate artist, you know, as uh, Ethel Brooks often says, mm. being the performers, the po the portrait painters on the road, the goldsmiths, the silversmiths, the sculptors, mm -hmm. uh, um, taking uh, culture from one location to the next, information, culture, art, taking it and connecting it with other communities. So our contribution is essential to what we call European art history today. Mm -hmm. And you were also, I, I find this very interesting, working on, you mentioned it before, the role of the models. And I know that you were researching on giving back names to these models, right? Yes, I think uh, an exhibition, which is actually told from the perspective from the model, mm. uh, would be truly enlightening. Uh, for example, I mentioned here Fenella Lavelle. And Fenella Lavelle had such a, an important influence on European art as being the model of Rodin and also being given by Rodin to Ripuronai, the Hungarian painter who was connected to European modernism and French, has been on the Paris Salon several times. It's very interesting because even biographies of these artists mention her as a as an American gypsy who was a muse, a natural-born muse, and who could play the guitar, but was of immense beauty. But I recently discovered that she's a Czech Romney, mm. Bill, you'll be happy about it. She's, she's a Czech Romney <laughs> okay. who has traveled. And yes, she became a famous singer and a performer, and her art led her to be recognized by these male artists who have then, you know, asked her to be their muse and their and their inspiration. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you should do this this exhibition, actually. Yeah, I would love to one yes, day. Yes, you have to. Actually, you did a lot of um, work on postcolonial theories. Um, I refer to Edward Said's theory of Orientalism and othering. The term othering describes the use of distancing and differentiation from distinct groups in order to affirm one's own normality. The concept of othering originated in the context of postcolonial theory and was mainly coined by authors such as the literary critic and political activist Edward Said and literary theorist and feminist critique Gayatri Spivak. 
Othering is a permanent act of demarcation, categorization and ultimately a distinction between an us and them. As you said before, Roma are kind of Europe's black people. So what can you tell us about the colonial fantasies of the majority society about Roma people? When we speak about, uh, for example, the depiction of Roma in European art history or how how Roma art uh, is constructed, it's very important that we are facing an immense tradition, the tradition that is created without Roma input, which is how the non-Roma imagine the Roma subjectivity. Mm. This is really a gigantic challenge. When I, in the beginning, said we have to be very careful if we say, you know, about a Roger van der Weyden a painting, uh, we see uh, Saint Magdalene in the headguard that is depicted usually with Roma. We cannot say that here we see a Roma woman. Mm. Because unfortunately, most probably, this iconography refers to a hidden woman in general. And Roma are necessary already in the 15th century. They are necessary so that the majority can mm. distinguish and imagine itself. Yeah. And if you think about this, this is in 1427, 1490, let's say, the Roger van der Weyden uh, painting. So already these differentiations and these discriminations were existing in the 16th century, 15th and 16th century Europe. We are dealing with such an immense heritage of differentiation and also exoticization that when we speak of okay, changing stereotypes, a decade, Roma decade for changing stereotypes, I mean, I get the giggles from this, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, and again, this exotization and romatization of, of the Roma tells much more about the majority society than about Roma themselves. Tamea, you said that the European population, I, I really like this one quote, I, I'm just repeating it, that the European population needed the Roma to distinguish and imagine itself. I just wanted to bring that point out because I think it's still relevant today and mm -hmm. it's part of our, our history, but it's also maybe relevant to contemporary art, contemporary Roma art. I, I've seen this come out in different ways, maybe not expressed exactly the same way, but the, the idea of without the other, you can't, we, we can't be us if we don't have the other and how, how central that is to the concept of understanding the concept of the gypsy versus the concept of the Roma, because the other isn't necessarily Roma as you were describing. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, uh, so the idea of the gypsy versus uh, the white majority is very much of, a, you know, the Said fundamental thesis, you know, how the West needed to, needed uh, the other to versus itself. It is a very natural dynamics that we learn from Orientalism, on Orientalism. But I need to address here, based on Isabel's question, I need to address here another very uh, important phenomena. And this is very relevant to our present day. And this is how, in the case of the Roma, 
what happens with uh, the depictions of Roma in art history and also the contributions of Roma in this whole othering process and fighting against othering primarily is that we are present and some of our history and some of our contribution is actually also taken by this kind of post-colonial power game or decolonial power game. Many of the Roma images in art history, for example, are identified currently as images of Black people. And yes, we can engage in the discussion that we think of ourselves as uh, the Black people of Europe, Kali, Europa. This is very much present in the Roma context mm-hmm. that we are we are Black as well. Uh, but this is not Afro-European heritage. This is the Roma minority, the largest European colony, as I mentioned before, impacting European art history. So the reclaiming process is still ahead of us. And we need art historians, art theoreticians, uh, we need artists who will uh, really work on getting into the discussions, the scientific discussions of art history. When when did this reclaiming movement or this, let's say, Roma cultural movement and modern Roma arts start, this, this reclaiming as you, you describe it? When, when do you first see that? Um, I see it connected, uh, and you can challenge me on this, uh, Bill and Isabel, because I see it very much connected uh, to the first Roma, Romani Congress. Uh, and also in the late 60s in uh, Hungary, there was Janos Balázs, who was a very, very important celebrity uh, with all the wrong uh, reasons and all the romanticizations and exoticizations that we can imagine, uh, described as a lonely genius, unpaired on the earth, and this old hermit who was discovered in the countryside. So, you know, this romantic idea of the lonely genius <laughs> is such a cliche, and yet it was so popular in late 60s Hungary that he could really become a celebrity, like he was in women's magazines covers and the uh, he was celebrated as a, as a real icon. And that gave a, a huge, huge wave of popularity for the creative uh, production in Hungary. Would you consider that like the beginning of considering Roma interventions and art, Roma arts as a counterculture? Because often people consider uh, Roma art as a, as a understanding it as a kind of counterculture. And do you think it started really then or... I wouldn't say that was counterculture. That was na- that was still theorized as naive art. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and then uh, and and also just because I identify a certain beginning, as I said, it doesn't mean anything. There are yeah. so uh, there are so many other beginning points that we can start from. Uh, there was, for example, uh, a Romanian woodcarver who wanted to found a museum in 1939. Uh, Vinceler Horvat. So um, I think that's also an interesting story. But what is certainly a very important starting point we can depend on is uh, the first Romani Congress, which claimed that Roma authorship needs to be recognized. Mm-hmm. And they primarily thought of the writers themselves, who were still published under like other names. Uh, but uh, at that certain point, you know, uh, Roma were still represented by folklorists, anthropologists, wunderkammer owners, mm-hmm. yeah. ethnographers. So this was an extremely important step that really fertilized the creative industries in all our countries. 
The first World Romani Congress took place on the 8th of April 1971 near London. It was attended by 23 representatives from nine nations, Czechoslovakia, Finland, Norway, France, Great Britain, Germany, Hungary, Ireland, Spain and Yugoslavia. Five subcommissions were created to examine social affairs, education, war crimes, language and culture. At the Congress, the Roma flag, as well as the Roma anthem, Jelem Jelem, were introduced as symbols of the international Roma community. There have been nine international Roma Congresses so far. Every year on April 8th, Roma communities around the world celebrate International Roma Day not only to raise awareness of the demands for political, legal and social justice, but also to celebrate Roma pride and Romani pen. It's really interesting uh, that you mentioned the first Roma World Congress, that such a political emancipation movement, um, civil rights movement, is completely interwoven from the very beginning with this cultural movement. So that, that again, tells about the power of, of the arts. Uh, absolutely. But uh, let's admit also that the first Romani Congress came together as uh, a political congress. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, During those years, for example, Agnes Dorotsi was uh, uh, winning or amongst the winners of the Hungarian who, who what was it called, Kimitud, which is like the X factor of today. Okay. Mm -hmm. With her talent of saying poems, mm -hmm. primarily Romani poems, by the way. Karol Bori, who was also there as a politician, was writing poems. Thomas Acton was a young professor. It wasn't uh, simply a political congress. It was a vibrant, it was a vibrant exchange of extremely creative people, writers, artists, performers, musicians. So it's really the Midnight Children uh, Conference of the Roma Congress. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. So with contemporary Roma art, what means Roma art for you personally? Yes, contemporary Roma art is a term that was not really used uh, before the 90s, actually maybe before the 2000s. I think that what happened in the, in the, two, the 2000s is uh, that we started this critical turn. A lot of the next generation After the first Roma Congress, the next generation uh, was educated in critical theories. And I don't refer here only to postcolonial theory, but also the theories of feminist studies uh, and feminist theory mm -hmm. and trauma studies, the idea of decoloniality uh, or uh, working with other critical uh, studies such as critical anthropology. Mm -hmm. uh, these all uh, appeared in the Roma discourse. And I think that, that this critical theoretical discourse has transformed the art scene, which was until that point considered uh, self-trained and autodidact and had labels such as naive and mm. barbarian and art brute and outsider art in mm -hmm. the best case. So when we started ourselves theorizing um, art, 
produced by Roma intellectuals. That is when Roma contemporary art was born. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is early 2000s. And the culmination of this, this shift, this paradigmatic shift is actually the first Roma pavilion. I'm always so grateful that I live during these years and these times because this transformation is really amazing mm. in my life witnessing this together with the artists yeah 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 you curated the first roma pavilion the paradise lost pavilion in 2007 and now at the last biennale in 2019 um, the european roma institute initiated the future roma exhibition curated by daniel baker who was actually um, our very first guest in this podcast um, so you witnessed all this time and the development what has changed for romani arts and artists in the meantime in the last 12 years uh, what has changed is a very very important change the notion of roma contemporary art is accepted it is part of the art discourse it's possible and imaginable that Roma artists are not outside of the artistic canon, but an integral part of it. Art itself is in crisis because of its institutions at the moment. And there is space, uh, there is uh, potential inclusion coming in the next years. And I am fearing more that we don't have enough people to fill the spaces, that we don't receive enough inclusion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there, you think, yeah, I mean, Roma art can, can offer resistance. Um, did we reach the critical mass regarding number of Romani artists? Or what does Romani art needs to really um, develop its, its resistance and its power? I think that Roma art is uh, not only for me, but for the, com for the whole community is a source of inspiration and hope. Mm. It is very fundamental for us to find ourselves in positions, for us Roma to find ourselves in positions when we need examples and models of resilience and survival. And art, for example, in our performances, in our traditions, in our art forms are really important proofs that this resilience is with us for centuries now. Mm. Uh, what I also find is uh, the artists are able to speak so clearly of the aspirations and the potential of our community and also touch up on the taboos, which the community and let's admit political advocacy could never really do so properly and precisely. Mm. Uh, so I'm always grateful for, for the artists for these. Um, I think that uh, going forward, Art is actually the most substantial strategy in the Roma context. Do you have a favorite Romani artist? Depends if you're asking, you know, for a graphic artist. Do I have a favorite painter? Do I have a fam favorite woman artist? I could... <laughs> I could give you many favorites. Almost everyone I can also put a label on. So we're going to sit here forever. If I talk. <laughs> okay, okay, no problem. No. Why that person is my favorite in exactly which, which sure. way. <laughs> okay. If someone's never been involved with contemporary art, how, how should they get started? Do you have any recommendations on, on where someone could get started? 
where someone could st get started. Yes, I believe uh, we have uh, the ERIAC space has regular exhibitions and also an archive of all the previous exhibitions. And we have spent the past three years on exhibiting uh, the most well-known artists. Uh, and you previously asked, do we have enough new talent and upcoming artists and enough enough potential, um, I think that Eriak also needs to consider how to find upcoming talent. And I used to really enjoy doing this, uh, and I had a lot of capacity for this in my previous years as a, as a curator, finding new talent. Mm -hmm. And I hardly have any time for this. I'm hoping some researchers, young researchers and curators will find the same passion that I had in, in the beginning of my career. And we will learn that there's artists of Roma origin coming out of uh, universities, fine arts uh, institutions every day. Mm. And someone who is looking at the Roma arts, where would they start? Who should I look at? Where, where, do, where do I start if I want to learn about this type of art? I wanted to say two examples. One was the Ariac space and Ariac's archive. Uh, which is also available on the website. And the other very good location is the Roma Archive website, where we also have a list of artists and where you can actually learn about previous projects, about the art history and the image of the Roma in art history. You can also learn uh, artistic oeuvres and you can have like a monographic search. So that's where you would start your research. And then you would learn that there is no permanent space where you could walk in and actually study Roma arts, which is really, I mean, astonishing in today's Europe, that we don't have a museum where you can study the history and the art and the contribution of European Roma. I think this is kind of outrageous, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was... Uh... Trying to pin you down on naming an artist, but I see I'm not going to be successful at doing that. But the fact that there is a list, if our listeners are listening and they want to know about, there is a list of artists on the ARIAC website and you can look them up and then you, you can look at their work and you can get started there. So I just want to make that clear to everybody. Okay. You know, if I really have to name some of the leaders of the Roma art scene, I will certainly say that some of the artists who are still mentoring the next generations, some of the artists who were exhibiting in the first Roma pavilion, Delaine Lebas, Daniel Baker, yeah. I would say Andre Rach, uh, I would mention here, um, also Damien Lebas, who has passed away, but his art is inspiring today. I will mention uh, from their mentorship, we see a second generation of artists uh, who are working with more multimedia technology. I really like the art of Roland Korponovic. We have new uh, women artists, uh, Margot Mirgatash, Emilia Rigova, mm -hmm. uh, and we have artists who would never never want to be mentioned in the Roma context, but I have to mention them, amazing graphic artist, Robert Gabriel. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, and I love the art of, uh, you know, um, uh, Daniel Turner. So I, I could continue forever, which is very unfair, mm -hmm. because let's admit there's hundreds of Roma artists in today's yep. European scene. And uh, we always say this, 
most of the Central and Eastern European state collections are archiving over 10,000 Roma artworks and none of them are visible. So someone who actually wants to learn about this has a very, very difficult task and that's shameful. Yes, yes. Thank you for saying that. Art is a tool of knowledge production, a tool of resistance, a tool of empowerment. I wanted to ask you with respect to this, how have you seen Roma communities react to contemporary Roma art? And I'm asking specifically because Ethel spoke with us in the frame of the future Roma exhibition that was at the Venice Biennale in 2019, initiated by Ariac. You organized the visit of members of the Roma community to come and see the show. What were their reactions? First of all, we had so much fun uh, <laughs> uh, on this trip. Uh, uh, Diana Pavlovich is a very inspiring leader mm. and the Italian Roma community adores her in every way possible. Mm. So I must say that the event was slightly hijacked uh, by Diana's uh, role as a celebrity <laughs> leader, but the community was so interested engaged and respectful towards the art that immediately we had, I think, 180 live broadcasts uh, from their iPhones going towards the other community members. Uh, there was a very torturous uh, contemporary art dance by our Swiss, you guys will need to help me out, by our Swiss artists, Roma Artist Company. Roma Jam Session? Roma Jam Session, thank you. So, we had, I think it was a 45-minute minimalist art robotic photo performance. It was hard for me to comprehend and uh, with all the references that I know from art history and also with all my nerdiness. And the community was disciplined and completely engaged, filming and photographing and loving it and adoring them at the end of it. It was touching mm -hmm. and so emotional that uh, we are together in a way that is challenging us at the same time. Uh, and educating and there were many generations present at the same time it was it was us many of the Ariak events truly touching and very much yeah. inspiring yes yeah thanks for telling us about that I think it's time for us to take a little break talk about uh, our next little game or our our memory piece we ask our guests to bring a virtual gift and uh if you could tell us a little bit about why and what you have chosen for us usually are these memory pieces they should be an object an item that tells an important biographical anecdote or represents a central idea in the life of our guests so timea what's our present I brought you a handmade catalogue uh, from 1973 uh, at an exhibition of Tomasz Paley. Uh, he was very young then and he just returned from the Dutch Royal Academy where he was taught as a painter. And he said, I could have stayed, but I'm coming back because my mission is here in this country. He was uh, an educated painter who then went to Tisadob and painted the largest panneau of Central Europe, a 42 square meter wall painting. Mm -hmm. And this Tisadob castle was actually an orphanage where Hungary isolated primarily the Roma children who weren't going to be adopted by the white parents. So they were supposed to grow up here. And in this orphanage, there was a painting about the birth and, uh, and the history of Roma people. 
so these young Roma orphans were having their breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day in front of this gorgeous panel. And he created an exhibition. He most probably couldn't print a catalog for his exhibition, so he hand-wrote it, and he made photographs. And I received this little booklet uh, from his follower and student, Istvan Szentandrási, with many other similar treasures. And I wish I could show it to you now because it's absolutely beautiful. Wow, that's a nice present. Uh, Andre yeah, Raj once introduced me to the work of Thomas Speli. It's really impressing. Thanks a lot. That's a nice present. Thanks. Yes, very nice. Thank you. We put it on our virtual gift shelf. Timea, I'd like to talk a little bit about Ariac, or maybe get you to talk a little bit about Ariac. So for our, our listeners, you know, so they know, uh, in June 2017, there was an important historic moment uh, for the Roma cultural movement. The European Institute for Arts and Culture, Ariac, was founded. It's based in Berlin. And you, Timea, you're the executive director. Ariac is an international platform for European Roma culture and art for self-representation and knowledge production. Can you tell us a little bit about the work, uh, about the inst a little bit about the institution of Ariac, and a little bit about the aims and some some specific examples of the work that's been done? Yes. Um... Also, you are also in the Alliance for Ariac, yes. so you know very well the history. But I, I do, will, I, I do. Will. But, uh, <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm sorry. Yes, I, I. I am trying to play the role of the radio announcer, so that <laughs> and, and, and you. You play a very important role, and I think our listeners would like to hear it from you more than they would like to hear it from me. But okay. I'm. I'm happy to fill in anything, or I'm. And thank you for mentioning that because I'm not hiding anything either. Okay. <laughs> very good. So I start with the history. Uh, the 2017 launching of uh, the European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture is actually the crown uh, of uh, very diligent and difficult, also straining work of the Alliance for the European Roma Institute. Uh, the European Roma intellectual and cultural movement has fought over four decades for an independent state for the recognition of Roma arts and culture. And the Alliance did the same, built on this cultural movement, but fought for four years and also advocated and represented this important cause in front of politicians, ambassadors, and the Council of Europe and Open Society Foundations to achieve the founding moment. So imagine that these 17 intellectuals use their own resources and advocate and work voluntarily for four years just to achieve mm. this institute. So from my position, four decades of Roma cultural movement, hundreds of Roma intellectuals, the struggling community's desire, the four years of the Alliance members in this one institute and the trust of the Council of Europe and all the decades of work of the Open Society Foundations and the devotion of Mr. Soros himself. Mm. So leading this institute is extremely humbling and a gigantic responsibility and a job in which you wake up every single morning focusing on how you can excel and thrive and serve. 
So uh, Eric was established in 2017, and since 2017, we had over 230 events. Um, this puts an important event, an international conference, an exhibition, you know, an opening uh, onto the the activity map of this organization. Almost every every week, we have two of these events. Um, so. It's extremely active and demanding work. And uh, of course, this is not Ariac's work. Ariac's just an office in Berlin that receives the contribution of the members. It's a membership-based organization. And uh, the association's members are actually at the moment 147 members, individuals and organizations that are continuously contributing to the mission and daily work of ERIAC. Yes, and I would like to add, uh, and you can correct me, there are four thematic sections, arts and culture, knowledge production, history and commemoration, and media. And uh, a, a new branch office was recently opened in Belgrade as well. Mm. Is that correct? Yes, uh, we have the four thematic sections. Uh, we have a cross section, which is linguistics, and we are actually about to publish the first uh, language book oh, great. Uh, for, great. for, uh, for Romani education. And yes, we finished the building of a Belgrade office, which you would never think you could actually build an office through Zoom conference but it's possible because <laughs> <laughs> we built it during last year during the shutdown and the launching event didn't take place yet so we cannot say it's opened okay. but it is there yeah. it's there and, great but as soon as it's possible together we shall have a grand opening of a beautiful art space in Belgrade. Do you want to give us some some specific examples of your work like Roma Mama or others you want to highlight? I think that in Ariac's um, history, uh, some of the most important milestones are appearing as a commissioner at, uh, at the Venice Biennale mm. and also the Futuroma exhibition of Daniel Baker and uh, the exhibited nine artists uh, was a true success. Then uh, I would mention the Barvalipe University, which is a public education program that we are conducting online, uh, but uh, it is a very conscious selection of the strongest uh, Roma academics, highest scholarship, interrogated by opponents and uh, a very rigorous academic discussion. Yeah, I was very impressed by the series of, of those discussions and, and the, the selection of the subjects as well, uh, mm -hmm. from, from linguistics to history to political movements, uh, <laughs> all of that. I, I'm, I, I think that's some excellent resource. And if anyone hasn't listened to that, uh, I, it's still available for, for people to, to click on and uh, listen to those, those lectures. Is that something that is going to continue on a regular basis or is it, I don't know, planned for, I don't know, certain seasons like like a, a university semester or or how is that developing uh, the barbalipa lectures will continue also this year um, in the same format because the format is complemented by even academic institutions and what happened to the barbalipa lecture series is now academic institutions are reaching out to ERIAC to request corporations or request access uh, to the barbalipa lectures and it, this happens to ERIAC often that we do not prepare for the projected 
image of success and size that we project into the ether. And now we are having discussions with uh, three academic institutions about how to prepare to use this in seminars and in uh, uh, online education methodologies uh, together with students. What are the materials that the students will need? But we certainly consider and continue to prepare the lectures as they were before, and there will be other forms of using them for education purposes. I would also mention here the, the Roma Moma. Uh, the Roma Moma is the word comes from, of course, imagining a Roma Museum for Modern Art. And uh, this is a think tank together with the Off Biennale, together with several amazing art historians and critiques who are on a think tank and together with whom uh, we decided to simply start performing Roma MoMA as it would exist. It started with theorizing what this Roma MoMA would do um, and we have texts from uh, Musem uh, curator Julia Ferloni, uh, curator and current uh, Moscow cultural attaché uh, Maria Lind, Nanette Snoop, uh, the Cologne-based uh, Fanios Museum's uh, director, who, who is uh, the the director of the space, which curated this very important resist exhibition uh, in Germany at the moment. We have the Off Biennale team, Hainaka Shomoji, uh, Katalin Seikai, um, we have Vera Marusic on this team. So it's a very, uh, it's a team that has potential to connect the topic of Roma art with institutions and to conduct an institutional criticism. And here again, the projected image called the attention of the ICOM, the Museums uh, International uh, Associations. And we are having a discussion with the ICOM board on January 27. So we will express the aims of Roma MoMA and also the need for such a museum in Europe. Wow, that's great. Well, you, you know, our podcast is focused on utopia and ARIAC seems like it could be uh, uh, an integral part of that utopia. What, if you could, for you personally, what do you want ARIAC to have achieved in the next 10 years? How should it be developed by then? ARIAC is the place where we must perform utopias, no matter how crazy something sounds. Like, okay, let's start performing this museum. We cannot wait for these majority spaces to start giving up space and privileges. Uh, we are just going to start performing it as it exists. And we start performing it. And two weeks later, an American couple writes me an email that they would like to buy tickets and they can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> this is how you perform utopias. Fact follows fiction. And I think uh, if we continue performing these utopias, ARIAC uh, will grow, the membership uh, will thrive, and will nurture a new generation of uh, Roma intellectuals and artists. And this new generation of Roma intellectuals and artists will make real and true political, economic, and cultural connections to the majority meaning that they will not be in opposition, they will be integral part in shaping the discourses, shaping the exchange and shaping the future together. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any upcoming projects you'd like to point out? 
And the upcoming projects, there are so many of them that suddenly I don't even know which one <laughs> to mention. We are hoping uh, to have a conference in uh, France uh, this year that will be very that will be uh, of uh, of high importance. The conference on resistance and Roma history. We, this is a year of a, another Thai surprise that the membership gives mm -hmm. to uh, an outstanding artist. Mm -hmm. A Thai surprise also means that we are coming together if the pandemic allows. Yeah, hopefully. And we are celebrating with one of the greatest artists. So a lot of surprises at the end of the year are ahead of us. And otherwise, diligent work of the everyday of area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're looking forward to what will come up next. Yes, very much. Everybody's listening should be should be as excited as we are because I think there's a lot of things that that are just missing in the world in this space that we can enjoy and uh, Ariac really brings them to a lot of people. I think mm. that's a great thing. Mm. Yes, it's difficult as well. Everyone has needs and everyone has expectations towards Ariac. Uh, it's difficult to live up to all those expectations, and we are trying so hard, of course. Now, maybe let's move to a, a slightly different theme. I'm going to ask you a question uh, regarding what it feels like for you to be a Romney, uh, a Romani woman. Um, if you were asked questions about your cultural identity, what is it? How does it? What does it mean to you? Why is it important to you? How is it important to you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I am uh, just one of uh, of a community of amazing matriarchs. I have no other way to be than growing into an other matriarch who who is giving herself to the future through educating, sharing herself, through giving from her knowledge and from her food and from her heritage to the next generations. And uh, I see this, uh, I know we speak of the Roma community as a very patriarchal community. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's true that women are in a, in a double minority position, but uh, in our subjective stories, the role of women and their leadership and their capacities are always shining brightly. So being a Roma Matriarch, growing into a Roma matriarch is uh, very much my identity. I feel authentic uh, very much when I speak of my of myself being Romni. It comes for me with my skin color, with being authentic of you know how people put you to this place that you're a gypsy, and uh, you feel like you are forced into this position until the point that you inhabit it, you feel comfortable with it, and you find the treasure and the power in this, and you're able to talk back, to use a term from bell hooks. Um, and that kind of talking back is very liberating for me and it's i found in my life that it's not liberating for me but liberating to the young people i speak to and liberating to my colleagues and liberating to roma art i feel authentic as a romney and um, i think it's impossible to live anyhow else for me i don't know any other way of living i can't step out of this mm -hmm. 
I asked Bill the same question in the last recordings because um, we're always talking about this uh, cultural identity in our in conversations. And he said that sometimes he's really sick of being forced to think about what it means to him to be Roma and always thinking about his cultural identity. Can you understand his exhaustion? Yes, I can understand it. I, I also know this uh, very much uh, from the artists. Mm -hmm. You know, that sometimes it's nice to just be and not be Roma and not, not um, participate in this very complex heritage and discourse and politics. I'm not able to leave, uh, unfortunately, any longer. Like uh, I wake up sometimes thinking, okay, today I will dress very conservatively. And I'm in going to go to public official meetings and I'm going to act differently. And then I feel so unauthentic, you know, with my round little body. It's impossible for me to leave any longer from this Roma position. But I understand that it could be possible for others to desire at least to be free from it. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sorry if I sounded, Isabel, like I was complaining that I hate this question. No, because, not at all. <laughs> you know, but uh, I think uh, I think for, I, I just want to clarify. I, I wanted to stay as quiet as possible because I I had difficulty asking this question just now. I mean, I, I had to ask Timea this question, and I thought, well, it's it's a good question. It's okay to answer that every once in a while, and that's what we're doing on this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I had to actually ask it a few seconds ago, I was thinking, oh, no, uh, <laughs> how do I ask this? Mm -hmm. oh, it, it sounds funny to me. I don't know how to ask it authentically as well because uh, it's... it's uh, Yeah, I I uh, I I just want to pick up off of the example of Timea you just gave. Uh, yeah, dressing conservatively. Sometimes I I think I've gone to events in the past where I have to represent Roma, and I'm thinking, oh no, I can't wear that shirt that that has all the colors on it because I'm going to look too much like a stereotype. But I like it; it's my favorite shirt. But no, I can't wear it to this event because then I'm going to look like a stereotype. And I'm thinking, God, when it comes to Roma events, I have to dress like a gajo, and in my real life, I can dress any way I want. But when there's this extra judgment, I have to think twice now. And uh, I know. I, I, think know. That the I don't know if you guys heard my uh, Cairo story uh, but uh, I received a big European prize in 2008 yeah. and uh, I was dressed in a conservative suit and I got a present from my friend uh, a beautiful scarf from Romani design and I couldn't not wear the Romani design scarf because the friend was also following the event so I had the scarf on me and then while I was going off stage, I was extremely uncomfortable. I also just had my son. I was very voluptuous, very tired. You know, I, I also was exhausted with this managing the household, the baby and my career at the same time. Uh, but apart from all these struggles, at that moment, during this very fancy event, shaking hand with Christoph Stürzel and all these prize winners, very white and very, very distinguished, distinct in a way and well-mannered. I felt somehow inferior. And mm. then this inferiority culminated when I got stuck on stage between two of these wooden panels mm -hmm. with my high heels and I had to take off my shoe. 
Oh. <laughs> and I had no other, I know it's super funny, but what happened is I had to perform this, right? Because you can't just be uncoordinated as a Roma matriarch. <laughs> so I, I took off the shoes in an elegant way after I realized that I won't be able to get this out just by shaking my leg. <laughs> so I took up the shoes and I stood there. And the part of the audience who found me there without shoes and barefooted was touched. And several, one of them actually cried because I stood there for like 20 seconds and I just said, thank you. And I pick up, picked up my shoes and left. <laughs> but for me, that was an important lesson, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I have to embrace that feeling of feeling inferior and uncomfortable and not not too enough tall and elegant and thin and I don't know white enough. Mm. Mm. Yeah, many Roma emphasize traditions within Roma families and and they're passed from one generation to the next. And uh, yeah, you you've mentioned your mother passing on you know ideas to you. Is there any other example, anything you want to say from, from your family experience about uh, a Roma tradition or something that's influenced you that, that is kind of core to your Roma identity? Why my mother was extremely careful with, uh, with the surroundings, she has cooked Roma food and now she has also trained my daughters to cook Roma food. So we have a lot of traditional recipes. Uh, she's also coming from a from a musician family, which means every Sunday we listen to these Roma prime musicians on TV uh, doing their gypsy music, as it's called in Hungary. And uh, as much as I hated it when I was younger, I now know the songs. And you know what happens when you mm -hmm. know the lyrics of a song, yeah. you're just <laughs> involved. So uh, um, the musician uh, family's history is very much part of uh, my identity and now my children's identity. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't learn the language in my family because neither part of my family spoke Romanesque. So language uh, I did not inherit. But uh, gastronomy, this uh, interestingly, this kind of glamour, was also present uh, in my life through both of my parents, uh, a, a natural inclination for the glitzy and shiny and glamorous things mm -hmm. and flamboyance. I see that it's what Daniel Baker called the gypsy aesthetics, right? The yes. visual sensitivity. Mm. Exactly. Timia, you once talked about knowledge born out of Roma cultural heritage. What is this exactly for you? Can you give us some specific examples of this knowledge comes from cultural heritage of the Roma? Yes, I will sound crazy, Isabel, if I start speaking about this, but we, we maybe risk it. I don't mm -hmm. know. I start with a more subtle example that is scientifically actually proven, but uh, this one is um, how Roma have a very have a have an established knowledge about the sanitizing impact of gold and uh, copper and how these uh, materials actually have water to remain clean and consumable after they are stored in these pots and canne. Mm -hmm. 
So if you go into traditional communities uh, in the Balkans, in Central Europe, you will see that there's traditional blacksmiths, goldsmiths and coppersmiths who are still making these pots. Mm -hmm. And then today during the pandemic, we see um, a return of these copper and gold household utilities that are promoting antiviral qualities of these materials. Mm -hmm. If you go to Kakanj, there's a whole community of coppersmiths who are making beautiful uh, pots and water uh, water units and cups uh, for consuming water and milk and other products. So this is an old knowledge that is so central to the Roma knowledge that it's just obvious for mm-hmm. us. Oh, interesting. Some lessons for the majority society here, right? <laughs> yes, and I could go into these uh, lessons about water memory mm-hmm. and how you shouldn't drink the water that comes straight out of the pipe, but you should let it sit so that it consumes nice memories and then you drink the water. Mm-hmm. But I told you I was sound crazy when I started. <laughs> no, we don't. It's interesting. <laughs> and I mentioned just two more examples. Yeah, yeah please uh, go ahead. One of them is is the communication through patchworks, which was uh, a communication method not just during uh, the uh, the underground slave movement in the American history, but it's also a communication technique of Roma women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so patchwork as a traditional technique with embroidery is an extremely important communication technique between Roma women, and it's a historical tradition. Mm-hmm. Or I bring the example of flamenco and then I stop with my craziness. (laughs) This is an example of flamenco we know primarily as a dance form. A dance form actually born out of Roma resistance. And I refer here to the words used by Bill and Anna Mirka, my colleague, and Bill Bill, who is sitting with us today. So it's a dance form born out of resistance. What we don't know about flamenco is the Hitano and Hitana, they use this word similar to the word that Eastern cultures use the word of chi. It's life energy. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere in household design. It's in your breathing technique. It's in your constellation. When the I hear these mindfulness trainers speaking about uh, how to be mindful, how to fix your energy, how to breathe to fix your energy, I can't think of anything else but flamenco. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I have uh, examples of this. Maybe one day I will write a blog about all these crazy, crazy knowledges that we know are central to Roma heritage and are used in a strange way or popularized in a strange way in our current uh, popular cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of appropriation, actually. Um, Bill, shall we play our little game? We're going to read some terms to you and you answer spontaneously without thinking. With just one word or one sentence. Okay. Yeah? Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Art. Future. Knowledge. Elders. Resistance. Holocaust. Body. Women. Nature. Life. Home. Children. Love, family, hate, persists, Europe, peace, institutions, museums, politics, Roma, 
Dilino. Dilino. Oh, majority. <laughs> Bachtelo. Joy. And Gajo. Education. Anti-Gypsyism. Hatred. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's the end of our little game. Dilno is the Anglo-Romani word for fool or foolish. Dilino is the Central European version of the same word. It's the diminutive of the word dilo. This is originally an adjective, but can be used as a noun. And in both cases, even people who don't know Romani very well will often know this word. Bok is the Anglo-Romani word for luck. It's Central European version, bacht means luck or happiness. Bachtalo is the adjective, means happy or lucky. It's typically used in a greeting, Teoves Bachtalo, may you be happy and lucky. Gorjo is the Anglo-Romani word for a non-Romani person. In Central European Romani, the word is gajo. In its original sense, it's not pejorative. Depending on context and tone of voice, it can be pejorative, and people not familiar with the Romani language often presume this negative meaning. Yeah, let's talk about utopia, about dreams. Let's start with a dream. If you could spend a day with an important, perhaps a well-known person of your choice, could be dead or alive, who would it be? Very lucky person. I usually get my wishes to come true, you know. <laughs> I've done this. I've, I spent a day with Gayatri Spivak. Ah, yeah. I had the chance to do this with Eriak, uh, the European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture, and Bill Billow was actually a discussion mm -hmm. partner for a... Mm -hmm. uh, Yes, yes, that was a very nice, nice day. Yes, was, I was in the audience at least. <laughs> oh, nice! nice. Yeah. Yes, now I remember also mm -hmm. Isabel that you were there, and we were focusing on affirmative sabotage. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but you didn't know that I wasn't tortured only during that conversation by Gayatri Spivak, who called me out on my really bad questions. <laughs> I was tortured from the moment of her arrival to the airport the night before. My colleagues also uh, put her into the hotel as Mrs. Spivak. And that was a nice performance of an hour of a neurotic outbreak, how we women shall have the right to be Mrs. until we die. <laughs> and that's true, too. Mm -hmm. so I've had this. If I could choose someone else, it would most probably be Bell Hooks, mm -hmm. uh, whose books I really love. And the last one on love uh, was very important reading for me. Mm. actually, because of my nerdiness and know-it-allness, I really have to learn a softer way of kindness and love in general. Would you call yourself an optimist or a pessimist? I'm a frustrated optimist. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think as a frustrated optimist? Do you think that the, the current crisis could, can become starting point for changes? Oh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> if the crisis gets subversive enough to address social forms and class issues, then perhaps the crisis can be productive. Whenever I'm in Budapest, by the way, I get into a very, I get into a mode of apathy. There's not much we can do um, and we are doomed. But I think this is just some kind of Central European nihilism that takes over me whenever I'm here. And I remain hopeful. The crisis can have productive output, but I think that we need to achieve a, a point of the crisis, which is so deep that it really is subversive. Mm. 
Yeah. In what regard can Roma serve as a model for new ways of understanding the Europe of tomorrow? What do you think the majority can learn from us? I could answer uh, positive statements regarding our resilience and survival and uh, regarding how we managed to transfer the knowledges and heritages without any support, any institutions, generations to generations. This transgenerational knowledge has created the current intelligentsia, the current leadership, which is not any longer isolated, but is one block. And uh, this achievement is certainly one that will transform Europe. There is no turning back and uh, the colonial process is irreversible from this point on. What we can teach Europe is not this resilience. This is important for ourselves. This is mainly our own lesson. But what we can teach Europe is if we will not go away, if we will not be silenced, if we will not be killed and we stay, and we grow unstoppably, and we have, even under these circumstances, managed to contribute to the ideas of Europe, is we can teach the values that Europe has has obviously forgotten. Mm. The values of belonging, the values of respect, the values of solidarity, and the values of living together in peaceful cohabitants. So you think we can help Europe to distinguish and imagine itself with Roma included in that vision? There's no other way to go. I mean, we don't have to help. We are the only community who knows this. We have a history. We are the most peaceful minority. We haven't participated any of the major European conflicts and wars. And uh, we have this knowledge in the core of our community. If Europe as such wants to exist, Europe will have to re-examine itself being a community. A community is based on values. And these values will have to come from a growing population, one population that can define the future, and that's Roma. (laughs) For me, this is not even an utopia. This is a logic Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then if it's not utopia, what would be your utopia, your dream for Europe? Well, I'm very radical. I'm a bit afraid to say this, but I would like the United States of Europe. I would like one constitution that ensures the equality of people and ensures that we are not just an economic community, but a political, cultural and value-based community as well. Hmm. A federal Europe. Hmm. Yes. That's a nice and, utopia. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's so radical. I say that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) No one is listening. That's good. That's good. I think, Bill, at a certain point, you know, it will be us and maybe a few other believers in Europe, you know, with this European flag standing somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think so. Timia, one last little game, one last question to this really wonderful, exciting conversation we had. If you could ask one question on all radio stations, TV, print media in Europe for one day, what question would it be? What question? 
what makes you happy at the moment? What gives you joy at the moment? Or in other terms, you know, how are you thankful? Oh, that's good. Thank you, Tamea. Thank you. It was really a, a very fantastic exercise uh, thinking together with you. Very playful and uh, exciting. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for being our guest. It was really inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for, for taking the time out for us. It was great. Thank you. Romatopia is supported by the Federal Agency for Civic Education and the Council of Europe Roma and Travelers team. Idea and concept, Isabel Rabe. Romatopia is hosted and edited by Isabel Rabe and William Bila and directed by Katja Lehmann. Sound design by Selamet and Kefait Prizreni. Cover motif by Daniel Baker. Production, Media Bricks Berlin, 2020.